You're listening to A Day in the Life podcast brought to you by the International Myeloma Foundation. We hope this podcast provides messages of hope and resilience for those in the myeloma community and beyond. Today, we are talking to Thomas Good, who was diagnosed with myeloma in 2005 at the young age of 34. Thomas shares his in-depth story of diagnosis, treatments, and multiple relapses in the audio podcast, Myeloma Voices, also brought to you by the International Myeloma Foundation. Thomas, I listened to the Myeloma Voices podcast, and I encourage anyone who really wants to hear the story of someone who continues to fight in the face of what all this disease can throw at a patient to listen to your episode of Myeloma Voices. Today, though, I want to focus on sort of the life-shifting moments in your myeloma journey. To begin, can you tell me if you can recall what your life was like before you ever heard of myeloma, before diagnosis? First of all, I'd like to say thank you for having me. Prior to myeloma, I was a, I was a very active young man. You know, I I was on softball teams and basketball teams and pickup basketball. Also, I was working at a federal prison, so I had to maintain my physical fitness to be a part of that community. You know, if I had an altercation to respond to, I wanted to make sure I was fit enough, active enough to get there and uh, being able to work once I, once I got there as well. So, you know, prior to myeloma, I was very active and, you know, I, I'd never heard of it. So you can imagine how it was such a shocker when I was diagnosed. And, and you had never heard of the disease ever? Never. Like you said, you're really into fitness. And um, I, I listened to your Myeloma Voices interview, and it seems like you always instinctually knew how to advocate for yourself, even from the time of your diagnosis. I understand you first started experiencing pain in your shoulder during a workout, and your family physician told you that that was bursitis in your shoulder. But you went ahead and decided to request more of a workup of that pain. How did you know to advocate for yourself at that time? Um, being an athlete, self-proclaimed, I could tell the difference between workout pain and the pain that I was experiencing. So when he said that I had bursitis in my left shoulder, I didn't accept that that diagnosis, you know, especially since I'm right-hand dominant. So I had had uh, medical surgeries on my knees at this orthopedic specialist. And I went back to him because I knew what he was going to do, which was an x-ray and an MRI to get to the bottom bottom of what my pain was coming from. That's interesting because a lot of myeloma patients, it takes a long time to be diagnosed because it, sometimes they don't, they just listen to their doctor and they, well, how would you know, you know, that this pain is related to this, this illness? And when you were first diagnosed, they said it was a plasmatized cytoma in your shoulder, correct? Yes. And, and did the doctor explain to you at the time, like, this is multiple myeloma, what plasma cytoma means? Well, that orthopedic specialist, he's the one that, that diagnosed me. He explained it to me as a cancer of the plasma cells that's isolated in one area. After that, he introduced me to an oncologist. And, you know, they say, hey, don't go to the Internet because the Internet will give you bad information. I didn't listen to them. I went to the Internet and I did read what a plasma cytoma was. And they said that if it comes back, it can be in a, 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 an aggressive form of multiple myeloma if it comes back in multiple areas. So when I did go to the oncologist that he requested and I questioned more about a plasma cytoma, he told me the exact same thing as well, that it can come back as a multiple myeloma. And then after that, you started experiencing pain in your spine, I think at T12L1 vertebra. And so you underwent at the age of 35 an autologous stem cell transplant. By this time, they knew you had myeloma. You went through an autologous stem cell transplant. 
And then just two months after that transplant, which is a very grueling procedure, when you learned you relapse, how did you cope with learning that so quickly after having gone through that procedure? You know, it was a shocker because being that it was found on lab work, I felt like I was, I felt really good. You know, I felt I was getting my strength back to become the person that I was or like what I like to call my new normal. You know, I was trying to find my new normal. I knew that I wasn't going to be the person that I was prior to myeloma, but I wanted to get to a, a better place. And I felt that I was on my way there in those two months, you know, because I was monitoring my counts. I noticed all of my counts were within rate, within range. And then when I get the news that um, I had this relapse, it was I was heartbroken from it. That's really tough. And then I understand soon after that, the doctors pushed for an allogeneic stem cell transplant, which for listeners, that's when a donor donates stem cells for you for your transplant. And you have seven siblings. And then I understand you and your brother worked together to do this transplant. What was it like for you to have your brother be your donor? What was that process like? So that that process was was wow. Um, I'm actually the youngest of 11 siblings, but they can only test my biological siblings. And my oldest brother, he was like, um, he said, look, don't, you guys don't have to do anything because I already know that I'm the one. So mm-hmm. they, they was pretty much having bets on who was going to be my donor. <laughs> and luckily it came out that he was the one that um, w- was a perfect match for me. As you're going through all of this, all of these treatments and everything, I think one of the things that people kind of forget, we hear these stories of patients and their diagnosis and their treatment and and how that all happens, but they kind of forget like you have real life, you have families, you have commitments. And I listened to your Myeloma Voices interview. Um, I understand the North Carolina prison where you were working couldn't hold your position for you while you were going through some of this uh, these treatments. And then you transitioned to being a stay-at-home dad. What was that transition like? So, you know, that was another slap in the face when I relapsed at the uh, after two months after my first transplant, because my initial goal was to have a transplant, um, sit out of work for maybe six to eight months, and mm-hmm. then go back to work with my position and resume what I was doing at work. However, once I had to go into that allergenic transplant just six months later after my first, that pushed everything back. And therefore, by the time I was able to go back to work, I had lost my position anyway because of that. And it was uh, it was heartbroken. I was heartbroken from it. It was heartening to hear those new, that news that you are um, medically retired, you know, that I can't go back to work and work in my position. Because you figure at the time I was only 37 years old. Mm-hmm. And at 37, you're telling me that I can't work. Somebody that's been getting up, going to work ever since my teens. Now at 37, you're telling me I can't do it. So, yeah, I became a, a stay-at-home dad, and it was a role that it took me a while to get used to. I went through a mild bout of depression because, you know, I didn't want to be in this type of role. Um, at the time, I was married, and I saw that I can see the stress that was that this all of this had put on my wife because she was trying to take care of myself and take care of the family and go to work and do all that she could do to provide for us. So it was a it was a situation where I had never been in a situation where uh, I didn't know how to handle it. So it was something that I had to adhere to. And I uh, found ways to get out of my depression. And I found that out in the gym. 
And once I got a routine, I, uh, I just took full advantage of it and I made the best of the situation that I was put in. What was the routine like? I would, I would take the kids to school. I would uh, leave there, go to the YMCA. I would come back and cut the grass or anything that I had to do around the house. Uh, then I would um, pick the kids up from school, cook dinner, and get ready for the evening. So once my wife came home, all she had to do was check her mail, eat dinner, and get ready to, to relax until the next day. And how many kids do you have? How did your kids handle all of these changes happening? I have um, three girls. Oh, wow. Three biological girls. And I have a stepson and stepdaughter. So my my kids was it was it was tough for them at first you know but after they went through the um the relapses they saw how i was handling the relapses you know because i was positive throughout it all and my positivity wore off on them as well so that made them feel at ease that they knew i was going through cancer but since i felt like i wasn't worried about what was next they wasn't worried about what was next either. That's a great testament to your strength. To, and you have to keep it together as a parent. I think people kind of forget about that. You know, you're going through all of this and you have to keep it together for all the people around you. And yes. also at, around that time or after you can correct me about the chronology, you move, your family moved from North Carolina to South Carolina. Your wife got a promotion that moved you there. And I understand you had a bout of shingles and you had to be isolated in a negative pressure room in the hospital for more than a week. I was just curious if this might be some insight you could provide to people people who are going through COVID-19, um, what was it like to get through that kind of isolation and being ill at the time? And what, what can you advise people if they have to do something similar? If the audience don't know, the shingles attacks a nerve in your body and mm -hmm. then it, it runs down that nerve. Um, the shingles attack the nerve in my lower back where I had my problems at. So that pain was a reminder of the excruciating pain that I dealt with when I was diagnosed with myeloma. So my first instinct about the shingles was my, you know, my cancer was back because I felt that pain again. And so I got an appointment for MRI. The MRI came back the results so that I had lytic lesions in those areas. And that doctor told me that my cancer was back. After, you know, looking at the, my body, you know, I was starting to get zosters all down my legs. And I went back to Google and, and compared the picture of my leg to the zosters on the, on the screen. And I felt that it was the shingles. So I called the doctors back up here in North Carolina and I told them what was going on. And they advised me to go to the hospital there in South Carolina and tell them that, you know, tell them to, to admit me and give me uh, IV acyclovir to help with the um, help clear the shingles that's in my body. When I went there, they said that I had uh, MRSA. <laughs> They said that I had MRSA and it was nothing else, nothing like shingles or so on and so forth. So I ended up coming, calling the, the uh, doctors back here in North Carolina. And they was like, you know, if you can come up, please come up. I came back up here to North Carolina and they saw it and they was like, oh, wow. Because what happened was I, I had shingles on my body. I had chicken pox all over my face. So it was like a double dip. And they saw how bad I had it. So they was like, you know, we're going to have to admit you into the hospital. So when I got to the hospital, we have a negative pressure room for, for patients like this. 
And it was just a sense of isolation. You know, you couldn't talk to nobody. They had to take, bring your lunch in and put it in this one door. And then after they leave and close the door, then I can go in there and get it and come back out. And the only ones that came in was the doctors and the nurses, the nurses, but they had to go through a protocol, the same thing. They had to scrub up and put um, vests and stuff on just to come into the negative pressure room. And then once that door closed, they come in with me just so none of my symptoms or anything from the shingles can go out in the hallway and affect the other patients that's dealing with, with their myeloma. You know, because this was an area where it's nothing but transplant, not just myeloma, but nothing but transplant patients. And I didn't want any type of virus from myself to, to fear, fear out and go and get them sick because I already know that they have a compromised immune system. And that's basically what we're dealing with right now with COVID-19. How did you mentally cope with that? Just being so by yourself and knowing that, you know, each second was challenging, I'm sure. Um, I, I use it to my advantage. The nurse manager was right across the hallway and, and her and I became good friends during the process. I used to, I had, I traveled with resistance bands. So I always have bands with me. So I just made myself a little makeshift gym inside the uh, hospital room. And I put a towel down and I would do push-ups, and I would uh, lay a full towel down and do sit-ups. And I had my bands. I'll throw my bands up under the bed and I'll make me a little little uh, press machine. Um, so I, I, that's how I maximize my time by using that. Yeah. And physical activity definitely sparks clarity. It just clears your mind. And so I, you, you know that and you know how to go back to that whenever you need it, which is great. So another thing I was listening to your myeloma voices story, and this kind of goes back to your kind of finding out on your own that, hey, this could be shingles. You seem to have number of times spoken up to your clinicians when you have pain. Um, you requested a PET CT scan when you had shingles and and realizing hey, to say to doctors, hey, I've got this pain and I need this test. What would you be your advice to patients when they're kind of reluctant to kind of tell the doctor how to be a doctor? Not that that's what they're doing, but in the sense that you know your own body. How how do you recommend patients sort of advocate for themselves in those situations? What you just said, I know my own body and every patient should know their own body. Even after the shingles, I felt something different. You know, I felt a, a little tweak in my in the middle of my back. And I had one of my daughters to push on it. And mm -hmm. it, it was excruciating. I was like right there, like push on it and it hurt. So I called them. I said, hey, what kind of appointment do I have? And she said that it's just your, your quarterly checkup because by the time now, I'm, I'm only going to the clinic three, every three months. So she said, it's your quarterly checkup. Why? And I said, um, I feel something different. I said, can, can, I, uh, can you add a PET CT because I feel something different? And she was like, okay. I was like, what is it? I was like, it's just a little pain in my, in my back. And I can tell it's not from... Uh, exercising because I'm very careful when I exercise and I said it's something that I hadn't felt before and she said that uh she called me back I came back up to North Carolina for treatment and we went to the clinic and when she when I came out of the scan she had told me that I had a mask that time on my on my body on my T3 and T4 and it was again in my ribs I didn't feel the one in my ribs like I did the one that was on my spine and Knowing my body, that that allowed me to catch this fast before mm -hmm. it either either got bigger or I got even more sick from it to a point where I couldn't move. And 
I think that's what a lot of people should do is be able to tell the difference between um, what goes on with your body that you know that's normal and what's abnormal. And be comfortable. The other thing is be comfortable about it, about telling your doctors that, hey, I feel something different, you know, because a lot of people are scared to advocate for themselves because they feel like they don't want to tell a doctor what they are doing. So uh, sometime after that, I'm not quite sure of the time frame, you started a clinical trial. Um, when did you begin that and how was that recommended? How did you get on the trial? After that first relapse and then my brother did all of the testing to um, become my donor. That was part of a clinical trial. So while he was doing his workup for being my donor, while I was going through the process of a clinical trial and wow. that I was on uh, three different drug regimens. Um, to get my numbers back down. And then uh, after I finished that and my brother finished his part with the donating part, then we was able to go through with the clinical trial. What was the regimen on the clinical trial? It was um, compact, flubardine, and uh, dex, and velcate. Oh, and so your brother was going through collecting cells at that time. Was this the second allogeneic transplant that they were preparing him for or in you? This was for? the first. This, this was, was the first. first. Yeah. And then you went through a second transplant with your brother as a donor. When did, did that take place and how, um, what was sort of the process of that? And how did that feel to be like, now you have to go through, actually it was a third transplant, second time with the donor. What was, what did that mm -hmm. feel like to hear that? News? You know, they, they actually uh, looked at the NMDP to see if I had a match on the BOMAD registry mm -hmm. um, to see if, I could find a donor match on there that could possibly give me a different outlet or a different result with uh, treatment. Unfortunately, I still don't have a match on the uh, National Donor Registry. So my brother was called in again to be my donor for this, this second allergenic transplant, which was also a clinical trial. There's so many life-changing things that happened. I understand you're, you went through a divorce. What was it like to go through all this, all these health complications with myeloma itself and then this life-changing experience you know that was a that was a tough part of uh, my myeloma journey as well because you know that that divorce was the brunt of that divorce was taking place during my uh third stem cell transplant okay. and it was a it was a, a situation where i was having uh stress from treatment and stress from my relationship and they was both provide me a downward slope in my health. It just took a while for me to get to a point where I have to let all of this stress go and take that and build myself back up. And, and that's what I did. You also went through something called orthostatic hypertension, which I'm sure you can explain better than I can. What was that experience like? One morning when I, I was going back to the clinic, I got up early to, I think my sister had went outside and she had locked herself out. So she's banging on the door and I jumped up to go and open the door. And when I got to the door, I just, I passed out. I just fell. Oh and I was able to reach up and open the door and let her in. And she helped me get up. And I felt good after that. Then when I got to the clinic, it happened again. So I was uh, placed back in, the, they checked my blood pressure and for orthostatic hypertension. And what that did is that they test your blood pressure, uh, with you laying flat. And they test it while you're sitting, sitting up, and then they test it again while you're standing. 
So every time they tested my blood pressure, it dropped. So it was normal. If it was normal when I was uh, lying flat, when I set up, it dropped. And when I stand up, it dropped substantially. And that, that was when they diagnosed me with orthostatic hypertension. And I was placed back in the hospital uh, for that. You had so many complications. This, I understand you also had C. diff, you had orthostatic hypertension, shingles. How do you cope not only just living with myeloma, but all these complications and continue to find hope and believe in your healing journey as you face all of these complications? After my relapse, after my second aloe transplant, my cousin, he was my very close, close cousin, and one of my friends that me, he and I just came off vacation together. We both, we, us three went to Myrtle Beach and I told them that I was, um, accepted my disease. I accepted that the disease can come back at any time. I accepted that I can perish from this disease. And I told them from this day forward, I'm going to live my life to the fullest. And when situations like this arise, you know, the orthostatic hypertension, the, the CD of the shingles, and, and now the relapse, you know, it's, it's part of the process. It's something that I cannot control. And I refuse to stress over things that I can't control. Like you said, you're an advocate for living life to the fullest. And as also, you, as we started this interview, you're obviously into physical fitness. You were an athlete. What is your fitness routine like today? And what advice would you give to a myeloma patient who might be a little bit reluctant to engage in physical activity? I try to... Uh, partake in physical activity at least uh, five times a week, you know, mm -hmm. uh, six times if I can. I always take one day, which is Sunday off, but a minimum of five days a week. I try to get in and do something. I have a lot of things that uh, I have an indoor bike that I can ride. Uh, I have outdoor bikes that I ride when weather permits. My, I've got into cycling outside and I have a little crew that we ride together. I'm um, advocate in, in the weight room. Um, and one thing about inside the gym, I do know what to do and what not to do. I don't go heavy. I don't lift vigorous. I don't do wild exercises because I don't want other patients to look at me as a patient and think that I can, you know, they could just go from treatment to doing what I do inside the gym. I wouldn't recommend that. Um, I would recommend them first finding out if they are allowed to work out from their doctors, you know, because of their health, um, because of their myeloma status, you know, they had, they could have fragile bones, their bone density could be weaker, or they could have tumors in certain areas that they can't do certain exercises and so on and so forth. So I would recommend that they talk to that doctor first. And then if they're able to work out, I would tell them to go at their own pace and then listen to your body. If your body says rest, rest. Because I do the same thing. If my body tells, if I feel like that this day I, I shouldn't go, then I listen to myself and I would not go. So. Excellent. And just to kind of wrap up, you've, you've probably heard the statistics many times. Um, as you know, myeloma is two times more common in people of African descent. So what do you think is important for African-Americans to know about multiple myeloma? It's, uh, it's one of them type situations where I want to say you have to trust the process, you know, People are so scared, especially in the African-American community, they are so scared to actually go and get tested about um, anything, anything. And then even when you're told that you have myeloma, some some may refuse to go get treated for that. Is it is it I don't know what reasons are. Uh, it could be financial. 
It could be uh, history, historical. So I would just tell them, trust the process. It's something that we have to do. You have to, you have to advocate for yourself. Don't be afraid to advocate for yourself. That's another thing that I would tell them, that it's okay to, to question some of the doctors when they tell you something. It's okay to get a second opinion. Um, and some just, just refuse to do that. And on, by the same token, what do you think is important for the medical community to understand about African-American patients and myeloma and also African-American patients and their access to clinical trials? In the medical community, it, it's tougher because it'll be hard for someone that don't look like me to convince me to be on a clinical trial. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the things that I do as a patient advocate is explain to them how I have been there. You know, I have, to, I have trusted the science to say, hey, um, I want to be a part of this trial. And then and I even explained to them, I said, hey, if they was to ask me, well, the, the clinical trial must didn't work because you've relapsed. So I would tell them, um, what makes you think that it didn't work? It could have just parlayed long enough for me to get to the next set of treatment. And then I go to the next set of treatment. And then what that doesn't work, I go to the next set of treatment because myeloma is evolving. And back to back to the what I would tell the um, the doctors or the physicians is that you know it, sometimes we have to meet the patients where they're at. Mm -hmm. um, I speak with a lot of myeloma patients that's in rural areas. They don't have the luxury that I have, you know, at for a major institution. So I would I would tell them to you know teach up these local doctors, let them know what to look for when it comes to patients that come in with these type symptoms. Because this is something that where I lived that the doctor would have never diagnosed me with myeloma uh, because I would have walked in and he would have saw me as a physically fit black, black man. He wouldn't have ran the test that I needed to be ran um, to find out if I had myeloma or not. So where, where are you living these days? And I understand you're part of a support group there. And what do you do with the support group? I live in uh, Durham, North Carolina now. I was back at my clinic and my doctor came to me and asked me, she said, uh, Thomas, I want you to start a support group. So it was myself and two others. We uh, started the support group here in Durham. And, uh, you know, I, I call us a very small but powerful group. You know, we have uh, two major institutions in between us. Mm -hmm. And we have a lot of local hospitals as well. So what we do is we take the knowledge from two different myeloma specialists and we bring it to one in our group. And then, you know, it's maybe some things that we do on this side and some things that they do on their side, and we cross our uh, information, and then we can take these ideas back to our doctors, and they can take our ideas back to theirs, and it makes it it makes it so much powerful. I think Thomas, you're a great example of what it's like for a patient to take charge of not only your own illness but being part of the community and helping others, and that's a hard to do when you you're going through all of this on your own. So you're a great role model for so many people. So I want to thank you for being our guest today. I know your story will be an inspiration to anybody facing any kind of adversity with their health or in their personal lives. Thank you all for listening to today's podcast. This has been A Day in the Life brought to you by the International Myeloma Foundation. To learn more about the IMF and myeloma, visit us at myeloma.org.